Gracias, mi hermano. The Lord has really been moving by his spirit and uh, speaking his word to our hearts. It's, it's wonderful to be part of that. Privileged to be able to share the scriptures with you this morning, this afternoon. And uh, I'm opening my Bible up to Acts, the book of Acts. We're going to start reading in Acts chapter 2 and also some passages in Acts chapter 1. So I hope you have a, a Bible with you and we're going to be sharing uh, from Acts today. Before we do that, I just want to, uh, again, appreciate the way the Lord confirms his word to us in so many ways. And uh, the things the Lord had laid on my heart to, to share today were uh, confirmed by a lot of the songs that the Lord put on the heart of uh, Carl and the worship team, and, and especially the passage from Psalm 104 that my brother Ephraim uh, opened with, which uh, has a lot of the same uh, emphasis and the same themes as what the Lord put on my heart. So I don't, I don't think if I knew that I was going to be sharing along the lines of some of the very same ideas in Psalm 104, but the Lord knew, and that's what counts. And, uh, so praise the Lord for that. Amen. And uh, speaking of words from the Lord, uh, if you were here uh, a week ago on Resurrection Sunday, we had a powerful message that the Lord gave to us out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, it was uh, not only about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead, which as you may know, 1 Corinthians 15 is all about, but particularly about the powerful, dramatic, life-changing effects of Jesus's resurrection on his followers, on his disciples, on those who, who were there in the first century and are here in the 21st century. And um, Dave was sharing about uh, several of the disciples and how their lives were totally transformed because of the power of the risen Christ. And he uh, started by talking about Cephas. And of course, you know, I've, I've known for a, a long, long time that the correct pronunciation of his name was Cephas, at least six days. I've known that. Uh, but that was good to know. And, uh, but uh, Dave also shared about the, the transforming power of the resurrected Christ on James, the brother of the Lord, and on, of course, the Apostle Paul and his time, and, uh, and on us today, uh, as we uh, are also transformed by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The next event in the church calendar is actually not yet, but I'm gonna jump ahead and, uh, and share with you today. And uh, as some of you are familiar with the church calendar or you notice the passage that I'm opening up with in Acts chapter two, uh, what's the next event on the church calendar? The day of Pentecost. And uh, it wasn't cooked up in the New Testament. The day of Pentecost is first mentioned in uh, Exodus chapter 34. And you might wanna jot this down and check it later. Don't think we'll take the time to turn there now, but, um, Exodus 34 is when the day of Pentecost was first originated. And according to the ancient Hebrew calendar, the Lord gave to, to Moses, 50 days after Pesach, 50 days after the Passover lamb was sacrificed, the Lord instituted another feast and it was called the Feast of the First Fruits. Uh, and shortly thereafter, and the first fruits uh, being connected to the wheat harvest. And then shortly thereafter, another feast, the Feast of the Ingathering at the turn of the year. These are in Exodus chapter 34. And uh, this, is, this is the institution of the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Pesach. And um, so you see there's a theme of harvest 
there's a theme of God pouring out his blessing and his provision for his people uh, following uh, on the day of Pentecost. And, and many of you will remember and will know that Joel picks up this, this theme in Joel chapter 2. And again, I don't think we'll take the time to turn there. Some of you are familiar with, with Joel chapter 2, but you'll remember that in Joel chapter 2, verse 23, uh, he talks about the early rain. The Lord promises through Joel in Joel 22, in Joel 2, 23, that he will pour out the early rain for the vindication of his people. And then he says the early rain and the latter rain uh, he will pour out. Uh, and he says that uh, this will take, and so that the, that the threshing floor will be full of grain. A time again of God's tremendous provision and his outpouring. And he said, not only the threshing floor, but the vats will overflow with, with new wine, which speaks to us of the life of Christ and of, the, of oil. So a time of, of abundance of grain, abundance of new wine, abundance of oil. Those are the things that the Lord promised connected to the day of Pentecost through Joel in chapter 2, verse 23. And then the, the passage, the verse that, the, from Joel that's quoted the most often that probably many of you have, have memorized or have heard so often that it's very familiar, is the Lord says, after that, Joel 2, 28, you could probably almost say this with me, after that, I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, on all flesh. He said, the Lord said, your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my handmaids, my servants, I will pour forth of my spirit, says the Lord. Pointing toward Acts chapter 2. And a little bit later in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter goes on and he picks up this theme and he puts it in his proper context. And after, in responding to the things the Holy Spirit does in Acts 2, which we're going to read about in a moment, Peter says, this was all this happened to fulfill what was spoken of through the mouth of Joel. And he quotes from Joel chapter 2, 28 and some other verses there. So all of these things precede and, and set the tone for God's outpouring of his mercy, of his goodness, of his blessing, of his incredible grace and provision for his people. And uh, it's just amazing, the first fruits, the ingathering, the outpouring, all of these things are a direct result of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. And these are the things that that, that Peter uh, brings to light as he begins to preach that powerful, probably the greatest and in some ways most powerful message in the history of the church still in Acts chapter 2 following uh, the outpouring of the day of Pentecost. But let's, let's read together starting in Acts chapter 2 verse 1. What happened? When the day of Pentecost had come, the disciples were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Powerful outpouring, fulfillment. What an incredibly exciting time for the first century disciples and for us even historically as we read about it. 
And even in the, in the New Testament Greek, it's a very exciting passage. Um, it says uh, in the translation I'm reading, when the day of Pentecost had come, or, or in some translations say, when, when the day of Pentecost came, there's a lot more in the Greek than just uh, in those simple words. Uh, the King James translators struggled to, to, to translate it, and they said when the day of Pentecost had fully come, had come in its fullness. The actual Greek reading here, what Luke actually wrote, in, at least as it's recorded in the Greek, is this. He used the phrase, the to be completed day of Pentecost. The to be completed day of Pentecost. That is what the Greek actually says. It's like a long, kind of awkward compound adjective stuck in front of the word day of Pentecost. And he says, this is the to be completed day of Pentecost. It wasn't completed in, in Exodus chapter 34. It was in, the day was instituted then. It wasn't completed in the outpouring of the Spirit as prophesied and foretold by the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2. The day of Pentecost was completed, partially at least, in Acts chapter 2 in the, in the verses that we just read. I'm here to say to you today that you and I, right now, in April of 2023, are living in the middle of the to-be-completed day of Pentecost. I don't believe the day of Pentecost has been completed yet. It came in Acts chapter 2, as was foretold, but I don't know if any of you remember when you were first saved, that sense of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you remember the time that that happened to you the first time when you were a new believer? For me, I was in uh, September of 1970, and I was sitting in a Bible study in Wayne, Pennsylvania, a little town about 15 miles west of here. And um, all of a sudden, my house, me, was shaken, shaken with a violent rushing wind, and, and I was filled with the Holy Spirit. And for some people, it happens at the moment of salvation. There are other times. And um, if you uh, have been filled with the Holy Spirit, it's something that you remember. And um, I don't even think that that was the completion of the day of Pentecost because you and I have an opportunity this coming summer, very shortly in fact, uh, to go out and to share the gospel with, with unbelievers right here on the street. And if you talk to someone who doesn't know the Lord and you lead them to Christ and they accept salvation and Jesus becomes their Lord and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, isn't this also part of the, of the to be completed day of Pentecost? We're in the middle of it, brothers and sisters, and, and this is exciting. We just finished celebrating the Lenten season, speaking of church seasons and the church calendar and stuff like that. And um, thank you for those of you who joined us in fasting and in prayer during the Lenten season. It was a great time of fasting and praying and uh, seeking the Lord together for 40 days before we celebrated the resurrection last Sunday. But um, we uh, suggested some topics for you to pray about each of the, of the six days of the week during Lent. And um, does, that, did any, does anybody remember what we were praying for during Lent on Tuesday? Does anybody remember what we were praying for on Tuesday? It was revival. We were praying for the Lord to pour out his spirit on us individually, as a congregation, as a city, as a nation, the whole world. We've been praying for revival.
That's it. We're praying to be uh, for the full, for the to be completed day of Pentecost. What do we do to get ready for revival? First, I guess really the first question is, do we want revival? You know, maybe we're kind of content with the way we're living our Christian lives today. Maybe we, do, we really don't want God to upset our apple cart and pour out his spirit on all flesh. You know, if you're kind of content in the way you're plodding along in your Christian life, don't mess with my routine, Lord. And if, if that's where you are, then uh, we'll pray for you. <laughs> but, but assuming that, that most or hopefully all of us are, are praying for and wanting and, and waiting for revival, what do we do? What do I do to get ready for revival? Is it simply a matter of waiting for God to move sovereignly by his Holy Spirit, as he clearly did uh, in Acts chapter 2? Or are there steps? Is there, is there something that you and I can do to get ready, to make ourselves ready? You know, different people have different styles of how they live their lives. Some people live just from one experience to another and sort of go with the flow and let the, the waves of life carry them along. And then there are other people who, who, who don't live like that, but who try to make plans and look to the future and try to make detailed plans of how they want things to work out. And I'm sort of a little bit more in the second category, uh, people that make plans. And uh, Karen and I had a, a wonderful opportunity in March uh, to go on a trip with some members of the extended family to the Sea of Cortez, which is uh, off the northwestern coast of Mexico. And it was someplace that I had wanted to go for many years, and it was a wonderful blessing the Lord gave to us and uh, three other members of our extended family to spend some time there. And um, it's a place that's geographically spectacularly beautiful and full of birds and wildlife and whale watching and stuff that that really gets me excited. And, and I planned a long time uh, in advance of this trip to the Sea of Cortez, because I like to plan. And, uh, you know, there's not more than just getting, you know, packing my bags and uh, Karen made the airplane and hotel reservations and that kind of thing. There's more, more planning. I did a lot of research and a lot of study to find out, you know, what the opportunities were and what tours I could take and what things I could see while we were there. But nothing started. The whole thing was going nowhere. Uh, until the moment that the airplane's wheels touched down in Loreto, Mexico, the town where we landed. And that's, uh, that's when it all started. And where it all starts for us uh, is in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day, the day of Pentecost comes. But it's something God has to do. It's something that he has to initiate it didn't all come in Exodus. It didn't all come in Joel. It all it it it's, it, it it came in a great and exciting and a full way uh, in in Acts chapter two. But God does what He wants to do in His timing, when He's ready, not when I'm ready. I can plan and plot and scheme, uh, but there's some things that that God does when He's ready, and it's good for me to remember that. Is there anything in your life that you're waiting for? Is there something you've been asking the Lord to do? And uh, he seems a little slow, like he hasn't moved as quickly as you thought he ought to move. We're learning, aren't we, brothers and sisters, day by day, to live in God's sovereignty, to see what he's doing, and to wait for his fulfillment of his word, and yet to do it eagerly. What were the disciples doing 
in Acts when the day of Pentecost arrived in the, in the, yet to, in the to be completed day of Pentecost. Some people have had some good suggestions. I think in a way, what, what they were really doing is nothing. They were doing nothing. They were gathering together. And, and let's, let's take a look uh, at Acts chapter 1 together. So please turn with me to the beginning of Luke's account in Acts chapter 1. I want to see a little bit more about what the disciples were doing. Acts chapter 1. You know, Luke begins his second account. This is second, Jesus, of Luke's second account. And it's, it's about the things that Jesus began to do and teach, he says. And he's talking about a particular period in the opening chapters, opening verses of Luke, of, of Acts chapter 1. About the, and it's the period between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension into heaven. And uh, Luke says it was a period of about 40 days. And um, he presented himself alive, uh, and he, gave, he instructed them, and he was speaking to them concerning the kingdom of God. This is Acts chapter 1, and in verse 4, Luke records this. Gathering the disciples together, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you have heard, from, heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What were they waiting for? Why were they waiting? What were they doing when they were together there in the upper room? What are we waiting for as we wait on the Lord? It's God's timing. He moves when he's ready. The greatest event that's occurred in all of human history, in my opinion, is the incarnation. That moment the, the Apostle John records in John 1.14, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the greatest moment in human history, in, in my opinion. When did that happen? Exactly, exactly, in the fullness of time. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says those exact words, thank you. He says, in, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who are under the law. In the fullness of time, Mary was pregnant. She gave birth just at the right moment. The entire universe was pregnant and waiting for the fullness of time. And it was at that instant that God sent forth his son. I think the same thing true of the Holy Spirit. When is the Holy Spirit outpoured? When God's ready in the fullness of time, in his sovereignty. And that's what we're really reading about in Acts chapter 1, chapter 2, the to-be-completed day of the Lord, coming of the Holy Spirit. But do we really trust God for his timing, or do we get a little bit anxious and want things in our time? I know a beautiful young woman who grew up in the city of Philadelphia, and uh, she was quite, she's quite talented and was very successful in her career, but the deep desire of her heart was to find a husband and get married. And uh, 
she was, she was getting, not older, but she felt a little bit older. And uh, she, some of her friends, her young women, she, she knew from she was little, had already gotten married and started families. And she was starting to say, well, you know, what about me? Is it, when is my time, Lord? So two weeks ago, uh, I had the privilege of walking her down the aisle. And uh, it was a beautiful experience. But, you know, it was worth waiting for because God's timing was, was perfect. It might not have been exactly when she wanted. She probably would have had it happen a couple of years earlier, but God's timing is perfect and uh, it's worth waiting for. But, you know, you don't have to trust God for his timing. You don't have to wait for the Lord. It's your choice. You can force God's hand. You can do things in the flesh. You can try to grab things when you want them. You're welcome to do that. There will be consequences. I was thinking in 1 Kings chapter 18, you know, Elijah's famous confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And uh, they were trying to get Baal to move. The prophets were trying to get Baal to move, you know. And Elijah was mocking them and saying, well, maybe he's gone aside and maybe he's fallen asleep. And they were shouting and jumping up and down and that didn't work. Baal wasn't answering and consuming the altar, the fire on the altar. And so uh, they started actually get gashing themselves with lances and knives, and blood was gush gushing out of them. And uh, sort of a, the ultimate futility of trying to force God to move. Of course, Baal is a fake God, which we serve the, the real God, but, but sometimes we're tempted to, to kind of gash ourselves and, and get to get what we want when we want it. I have to take a step back and sort of take back something I said a moment ago. Um, because I, I said to you, maybe a little disingenuously, what the disciples were doing when the day of Pentecost arrived was nothing. They weren't really doing nothing. They were doing actually some, some, some significant things. And, and I, I just made a mental list of four specific things that they were doing. And I want to uh, point to a couple of scriptures with you in just a moment uh, to show what those, what those things were, were doing. But I think that there's, a, there's an attitude, there's a posture uh, that the disciples had that summed up for me in the word poised. They were poised. You know what it means to be poised? You're not moving, but you're ready to move. And, and I was thinking that the perfect example for me in, in God's creation and in nature of being poised is the belted kingfisher. There's a bird called a belted kingfisher. And I think you're gonna, have, you're gonna see a picture of him. But uh, I don't know if any of you have ever seen a belted kingfisher before. There are a lot of them around. Uh, good, good. He, is, he has been seen. And uh, Heinz Refuge in Philadelphia is nearby the airport. It's a good place. But um, the belted kingfisher is a, a, a medium-sized bird. And uh, it's, uh, his, as his name suggests, he eats fish. And uh, what belted kingfishers do, it's, it's really intriguing to watch them is that they, they perch on a branch over a body of water, a stream or a pond or a lake, and they, they sit up there, they've got big heads, and they're called kingfishers because they have spiky feathers on their heads that look a little like a crown. And uh, that's a female, by the way. Females have two, two bands, the males just have one band. So the kingfisher will sit up there, and the, when, they're getting, when they're fishing, they turn sock with their bills pointed down toward the surface of the water, and they don't move at all. They look like they're doing nothing. 
in fact, sometimes they're so still they look like they're like just something sticking out on the end of a branch, like they're not even alive or they're asleep. But they're not asleep. They're poised. And as soon as a fish comes up to the surface of the water, they, they dash down like a, like a missile and smash through the surface of the water and, and catch that fish because they're poised. They're ready. The disciples were poised. I want to look out over our congregation and see a bunch of belted kingfishers poised and ready, not necessarily doing anything, but ready to move uh, when the Holy Spirit moves. I think the Lord wants us to be poised. But there, there are four things in particular that I noticed that uh, these men and women were doing uh, in Acts chapter 1 and 2. And, and the first is, is in Acts chapter 1 verse 4, and I, we had wrote it, read it just a moment ago. But the first thing is that they were gathered and they were waiting. Acts chapter 1 verse 4. They were gathered, they were waiting. Gathering them together, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from of me. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Why were they there? Why were they gathered? Because Jesus told them to, to do it. They were simply obeying the instructions, the commands of Jesus. How can I assess my spiritual life, my walk with the Lord? Is there any really simple test of how I'm doing with the Lord at this stage in my Christian life? I think there's a really simple question that I can ask myself. Am I doing what Jesus told me to do? Today, at this moment in your Christian life, are you doing what Jesus told you to do? If you can honestly answer yes, then uh, you are in the Lord's will for your life. They were doing what Jesus told them to do. He told them to wait. They weren't doing it because they felt like it. They weren't doing it because it felt good to be together because they liked hanging out with that group of people at 120. By the way, you know, Luke details exactly who they were. He talks about, he gives the names of the apostles. He says there were 120. He said that there were, the women were there and they were waiting. It's all in, these, in, in the opening chapters of Acts. So we know exactly where they were in the upper room, exactly what they were doing. They were gathered and they were waiting. They were doing it because Jesus told them to do it. Together, gathered, waiting. This is an, an exhortation that's repeated to us in the scriptures and by the Holy Spirit. Most notably, a, a verse that many of you are familiar with in Hebrews 10, verse 25 where this is the writer of the Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encourage each other and all the more as you see the day approaching, as the day of Jesus' return approaches, we should be all the more gathered together, waiting, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. What were they waiting for? If you look again at Acts 1, 4, what were they waiting for? Were they waiting for uh, to speak in tongues? Were they waiting for miracles and signs and wonders? Were they waiting for tongues of fire appearing on their heads as we read in Acts 2.1? Yeah, maybe. What they were really waiting for, according to this verse, is the promise of the Father. 
There's nothing else that's worth waiting for but the things that God has said he's going to do. The promise of the Father. What was the promise of the Father? Uh, in, in Luke 11, verse 13, I think it is, Luke 11:13, Jesus makes a funny comparison. He compares the Heavenly Father's parenting style toward us with our parenting style toward our own children. And he says, which of you, if his son asks him for an egg, We'll give him a scorpion. I think this is hilarious. I think Jesus is actually the funniest guy that ever walked the earth. And you know, his, his, some of his, his metaphors and his analogies are just, they're ridiculous, you know? Can you imagine how oh, your son comes into the kitchen and says, can, you, can I have an egg, Dad? Sure, here's a scorpion on a plate. You know, would you do that? It's ridiculous, it's hilarious. It, the idea just makes you smile and makes you laugh. Who would do that? If you, Jesus said, being evil, know how to give good gifts for your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's the promise of the Father, the promised Holy Spirit. Everything depends on the Holy Spirit. Can we try to have a revival without the Holy Spirit? Two weeks ago, I, was, uh, I wasn't here, I was standing at the back of the church right, right about this time, and uh, I, was I was blocking my daughter because she's wearing this gleaming white dress, you know, and people have a tendency to turn around before the processional to see if they can catch a glimpse of the bride. So I've, I was blocking her out so that they couldn't see her. And we were standing there and we were waiting for those, you know, stirring chords of the processional to begin so I could have the privilege of walking her down the aisle. And, you know, I only had one, line, because, but I was so nervous, I, I, I said it to myself over and over again, suppose I mess it up, her mother and I do, you know, the preacher says, who gives this woman to be married to this man, and I think I got it right, I don't know, I was kind of nervous, I might have botched it up, but I think I said something like that, her mother and I do, but um, what, what, what would have happened if Kirsten had changed her mind? You know, like if she had said, woken up the day of the wedding and said, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to go through with this. I don't feel like being married, uh, so I'm going to do something else today. Could we have gone ahead and had the wedding, staged the wedding without her? It wouldn't have been the same, you know. <laughs> I, think, I think somebody would have noticed that something was not the same. That's, that's how silly it is to think about, about uh, the, the, having revival without the Holy Spirit. But what happens when he comes? Well, Jesus specifically predicts this in verse 8. You with me, Acts 1.8? Not for you to know the epochs, but, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses, both in Jer my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. This is the transformation that my brother Dave was sharing with us so eloquently last week. He, the Holy Spirit is going to change you, you know, Cephas and Paul and, and James, you, you weaklings uh, with, without much faith, with a lot of doubt, you'll be transformed and you're going to be witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses to the remotest part of the earth. And they were. It happened. It came to pass. So the, so the first thing that I saw that they, the disciples were doing in the upper room was they were gathered and waiting. The second is in verse 14 of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, four, verse 14. And it is that they were devoted 
to prayer, devoted to prayer. The upper room, verse 12, Sabbath day's journey. They were staying in the upper room, Peter, John, James. He lists the names of the apostles. Uh, and then it says in verse 14, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers continually devoting themselves to prayer. Get the impression they didn't just pray once and then say, well, we've got that done, let's, do, let's play poker, you know, or do something else. No, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. This is something that doesn't change. This is something I think the Lord still expects of us. This was a guiding, the guiding principle of how they lived their lives. And it kept on uh, after the Holy Spirit came uh, throughout the book of Acts, in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We, we won't necessarily turn there. You can look ahead to Acts 2.42. But it says that, that those who were believed were together and they had everything in common. And it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Continually devoting themselves to prayer. I think that's important for revival. I think that's what they were doing, devoting themselves continually to prayer. Another thing that they were doing was that they were living under the authority of the apostles whom Jesus had appointed and under the authority of the scriptures. Verse 15, Acts 1, 15. At this time, Peter stood up, Peter the apostle, stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons, were there together. And he said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And he goes on and explains the need to replace Judas, the one who fell away, and to appoint in his place a 12th uh, apostle to fill that role. So you see, they were under the authority still of the apostles, Peter and the others, Cephas and the others, and also under the authority of the scriptures. The first thing Peter says is the scripture has to be fulfilled. We're not making this stuff up. We're not doing this stuff because it popped into our minds. We're doing this according to the authority of God's word, the scriptures that have been written. So they were under the authority of the scripture. And what was the goal that they were after in replacing uh, Judas? Eventually Matthias is chosen, as you know. Uh, the, the goal of having 12, it's not just because Peter liked round numbers, but it's in verse 22, if you can flip ahead to Acts 1.22, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that Jesus was taken up, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. The reason they needed Messiah, Matthias so much was what the apostles were doing, what the early church was doing was witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus. That's what it all goes back to. That was the whole purpose of the apostles in the book of Acts, was to witness to the resurrection. And, and that's why Peter, in, the, in that first incredibly powerful anointed um, sermon that he preaches in Acts chapter 2, which we're not going to take the time to read, but you, you, you can again if you don't remember it well, the whole focus is on the resurrection of Jesus. That this is what it's all about. And this is the, what, we're, what we're doing. This is what the church is. We're witnesses to the resurrection, the whole point, the whole purpose of the, of the book of Acts, the whole purpose of why we're living. When you share your testimony with an unbeliever and tell them you know, about how you came to Christ and why you think they should come to Christ, do you do that? 
you know, sometimes we start off by saying, well, you know, my life was a real wreck. You know, let me tell you how bad I was. You know, I, I was messed up in every area. And then Jesus came in and, and now, you know, I'm, I'm doing great. You know, I'm happy and I'm successful and I'm prosperous and everything's cool. Uh, is that, if, if that's your testimony, that, that's good. But there's something missing. There's some, a key missing ingredient. Peter would never have, Cephas would never have done that. What he would have, his focus was on the resurrection. Didn't just talk about him, himself and his own experiences. They talked, he and the other apostles, uh, about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That was their focus and that was their, their goal, their driving motivation. So they were get, the, the disciples were gathering, gathered and waiting. They were devoted to prayer. They were under the authority of the apostles in the scriptures. And these three things point to the fourth thing that I noticed that really jumps out at me of what the disciples were doing uh, on the fully, on the to be completed day of Pentecost. So look, look again with me at, at, at 2.1, if you will, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes when you read the scriptures, the, 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 the smallest details are really significant, but they're easy to overlook. Acts chapter 2, 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, the disciples were all together in one place. Where were they? They were in the upper room, physically. Where were they spiritually? They were together. Together in one place. That is where they were. You know, I've noticed this about Jesus. He seems like he wants his people to be together. You know, in John chapter 10, among many other places, that the good shepherd gathering people together in one flock. And when he says to them at one point, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, probably referring to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish believers who were to come. And he says, I'm going to gather them all together. There's going to be one flock with one shepherd. They were together, together in one place. You know, one thing I noticed that Luke does not say is that... Um, you know, Bar Bartholomew and a couple of the other guys, uh, it was inconvenient for them to be there, so they joined the meeting by Zoom. They didn't join by Zoom. They were together. They were in one place. They were gathered. Why is it important for believers to be together? Is it because we feel cozy? Is it like a, a warm, fuzzy feeling? You know, we sit around the fire and sing Kumbaya. Just so nice. No, it's just so nice to be together. No, the reason we're together is because that's what Jesus told us to do. That is what he commanded. This is what he expects. Acts chapter 1, verse 4, he expects us to be together. His commandment. There's a beautiful psalm that I know some of you are familiar with. It's a short, simple psalm, but powerful. It's Psalm 133, Psalm 133, that talks about this, about togetherness. It says, Behold how good, Psalm 133, and how pleasant it is for brothers, for brethren to dwell together in unity. He said, it's like the anointing oil coming down from Aaron's head to his beard, dripping all, all the way to the edges of his garment. The anointing, you know, you sense the Holy Spirit, uh, the anointing. And, and he says, there the Lord commanded the blessing, life evermore. God commands the blessing when people are together, togetherness. You know, I think, to, I'm not sure I like the word togetherness. It's sort of a hallmarky kind of word, you know, togetherness, oh, hearts and flowers and stuff. But if you take, if you if pretend you have never read a Hallmark greeting card, 
just the word togetherness, togetherness, the quality of being together, that's what Jesus wants. That's where the Lord commands the blessing when brethren are together in unity. Have you ever been in a situation where someone was missing and you just felt palpably that the absence of the, the person that needed to be there? Sometimes there's the sense around the deathbed when someone is getting ready to pass away and they, they, they don't, they're not ready to go until you know, that last cousin comes or the brother or the, whoever's absent and they, they just won't because, they, because they, there's that sense of wanting to be together with the people that are precious and that are close to you. And uh, sometimes it happens at holidays, you know, I, I wish, you know, Susan could be here, she couldn't make it, and it's not, doesn't feel like Christmas without Susan being here, or some, you know, that kind of feeling. And Samuel felt like that in First, uh, First Samuel 16, verse 11. I don't know if you remember the story, but God sent Samuel on a vital uh, errand in 1 Samuel 16, and he had to go to the house of Jesse the Bethlehemite for a particular purpose, and that was to anoint the next king of Israel, because Saul failed, and uh, God had to replace him, and he had something good in mind. So um, Jesse comes, uh, I mean, Samuel comes into Jesse's house, and he says, I want all, all, the, all the family, all the children to be together, and with each one, uh, the Lord said to, when he saw Eliab and the others after him, no, this is not the one that the Lord has chosen. So finally, you know, Samuel's saying, well, now what? And uh, Samuel didn't actually say, now what? Uh, that's, that's uh, you have to, to get that, you have to read the, uh, the NLT. Uh, that's a, a, a verse called the, the not literal Ted version. Uh, I quote from it a lot, the NLT, but don't necessarily recommend that you read the NLT. But uh, so, so Samuel says in the NLT, well, now what? And then he says, that, he says to Jesse, is there anyone else? And he said, Jesse says, well, there was the, there's that, the youngest, but he's out in the fields taking care of the flocks. And, and Jesse uh, hears this, this kind of uh, rebuking word from Samuel, we're not going to sit down until he comes. God wants, us, God wants the family to be together because that's where... And then, and then David comes in and, and, and Samuel pours a, a horn of oil over his head. Again, the, the anointing of uh, being together and God's choosing together. There's another um, idea about the, the uh, phrase about to being together that, that we already mentioned, and uh, it's in Acts 1. 14. Going back to Acts 1.14 again, and it's the idea of being of the same mind. He says that, um, he lists again the names of the apostles in Acts 1.13. In 1.14 he said, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. This is being together, it's being of one mind. Of, of uh, the, the, the Greek uh, adjective there is homothumadon, being of the same mind. And uh, there's a togetherness that not just physically, you know, you can be sitting in the same place with someone and hate their guts, you know, and not, not be together at all. But the, these, the, the, the brethren who were waiting for the Holy Spirit were of one mind. They were the same mind. They, they were thinking the same thoughts. They had the same goals, the same purpose the same expectation of what God was going to do when he poured out his Holy Spirit. And that's a beautiful thing, to be being of the same mind. 
always admired from the time I first came into this congregation when I was a teen teenager, the elders of Living Word Community. Um, at that time, they seemed really old and gray. Uh, and I thought that was strange. And they, another thing that was weird about them was that they were wearing suits and ties. And when I was a teenager, I was not wearing a suit and tie when I came into this church. Uh, but uh, the one thing that I, I, even though I thought they were kind of weird old guys, the one thing I really loved about them was that they were of the same mind. You know, these were guys who were really godly and who obviously versed in the scriptures, but they, they, they moved as one. They obviously uh, were at homothumadon, uh, Acts 1.14. They obviously thought together and, and were in unity. And, and that, yeah, I think that's, by God's grace, still true of the elders in this congregation. I, four guys that I get together with occasionally and, and love being with. You know, I, the, the reason I like them is not just because you know, they're charming and good-looking and talented. Uh, but no, the reason is because that we're of the same mind. We, the homothumadon, brethren dwelling together in unity. It's, it's, a, it's a gift from the Lord. So um, when they were together, when they were waiting, and when they were devoted to prayer, what happened? Let's, let's read it again, Acts chapter 2. I think this is exciting stuff, brothers and sisters. What, what actually happened when we were, we were together? On the to-be-completed day of Pentecost, all the believers were together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Hey, Bartholomew, how come you're talking in a language I never heard you talk before? That's really weird. Hey, uh, James, did you know there's a tongue of fire resting over your head? This is pretty strange stuff. This is, a, this is weird stuff that's going on. And um, what's going to come of this? Where is this all going to lead? Well, if you keep reading through, the, through the, the second chapter of Acts, you find out. They went out, they disturbed the whole city. Peter had to, had to make an explanation, said, these men are not drunk with wine, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. It's only nine in the morning. This is what Joel prophesied. Have you read Joel recently? He said, God said he was going to pour out his spirit on all mankind. Sons and daughters would prophesy on his servants and his handmaidens. This is exciting stuff. This has all been foretold. This is part of what uh, we are part of, the exciting, the blessing of being part of this, the infilling, the, uh, the first fruits, the ingathering, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the threshing floor, floor being full of grain, the vats overflowing with the, the, new, the new wine of life in Christ, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit full of oil. This is great stuff. I'm excited. Are you excited? Are you glad to be part of it? Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you so much for 
being here right now Lord, with these brothers and sisters. Lord, thank you for the, the amazing truths that you uncovered to us uh, on Resurrection Day a week ago uh, in 1 Corinthians 15. And, and just looking at the life of, of, of Peter and, and James and um, Paul, you tremendously transformed them, Jesus, because you were raised from the dead and they were your followers and they're in you. Thank you for the promise of the Father. Lord, you give good gifts to your children. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Lord, those of us who have been filled with the Holy Spirit, it wasn't enough. The, looking back to when it happened before, fill us again with your Holy Spirit. It's exciting, Lord Jesus, and uh, thank you for the privilege and the, the honor of, of seeing what you're doing in your word. Lord, we look, we look forward to the day when we see you face to face. But in the meantime, Lord, it's great to, to be living in, uh, in the to-be-completed to day of Pentecost.